There was uh, a book that was written in the, in the 90s. You've probably heard of it, maybe read it. Uh, it was called The Millionaire Next Door. Um, so this was, this was a book that uh, these two researchers were, were looking at where were the concentrations of wealth in, in American neighborhoods. And they said, contrary to what you would expect, uh, the, where most American millionaires were living were not in affluent neighborhoods, but they were primarily living in, in blue-collar or middle-class neighborhoods. They said, this is, this is strange. This seems counterintuitive to what you would expect. You'd expect quite the opposite. But they said, um, so if, if the neighborhood is not the best indicator of somebody's wealth, uh, what are indicators or what are markers of somebody who, who was a millionaire during the 90s? And so they, he, they identify different traits, and they say there's things that, like living below your means, uh, taking calculated financial risk, like investing, uh, they, they were big advocates for buying used cars and not new cars. Uh, they say things like don't buy, don't make like status purchases, like not buying luxury goods and, and things like that. And they say uh, with, with these things, then it seems like the, the people who make these decisions were more likely to, to develop um, wealth over, the, over, their, over their life. Uh, there's, there's a parallel to this truth um, to, to the Christian faith, there's, there's a sense of where, uh, this is especially true uh, from a pastor's perspective, uh, I think it's true regardless of where you are in the church, uh, but there's often a sense of the people that you see in the church, the people that you see typically that show up every Sunday, that show up to the events, that, that uh, are up to date in, in current books that are coming out about the faith, that know their theology, a lot of these things, a lot of times we assume those are markers of someone who has a deep relationship with God. A lot of times we look at, at those things and we think that, that I can assume that that person is strong in their faith because they're here every Sunday, because they know what, what dispensationalism is, and because they, they know some of these things. And as we're looking at 1 John, I think John would argue that that's not the best indicator of someone's faith. But that's not the best indicator. It's something that's good, but it's not necessarily the best indicator of someone having a deep, thriving, intimate relationship with God. And so he talks about what, what is. We're in the midst of this series in 1 John. We're talking about abiding and talking about how do we have a deep, fulfilling relationship with God and what, what does that look like? We've been talking about being honest with God. We've been talking about the need to walk in the light, to talk to relate with him with nothing hidden, the, the need to being faithful, to trusting in his character. And John continues now by saying, what are markers that we can know and recognize in other people that they have a maturing, deep relationship with God? He says, and it starts, and it's found, what's foundational is how do we understand our identity with him? And it starts with the foundation of this has to begin with who are we in God? So he starts in, we're going to be in 1 John 3, and he starts by reassuring his audience, this is who you are. In verse 1, see what sort of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called God's children, and indeed we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. 
And he says in this, he says, look, look at what the love of God he has for you and how he's demonstrated that to you. That he, we are identified as children. This is, this is John writing this, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote, writes John 3.16, that you are a child of God if you believe in Jesus and his promise of eternal life. That the one who believes in Jesus, that the gift of eternal life is yours. And he says, if you have done that, you are his child. It's it's important to note that when he he says this, I'm looking specifically at the part where he says, and indeed we are, like you are a child of God, indeed you are. He's using what's called the indicative mood. This is the mood of reality. Like what he, he's saying this is not a possibility, this is not uh, something aspirational that you can hope to. He's saying if you have trusted in Jesus, this is what is true right now of you. John is reassuring these people and he's saying that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, do not doubt who you are. Do not doubt the reality of the relationship that you have. Instead, you need to have confidence in it. Trust that, that, that you're his child. Trust that he loves you. Accept it and, and embrace it and trust that this is something that is true about you because from this, this is foundational in order to have fellowship with him. You know, I, when I think of, um, when I think of uh, timidity, a lot of times, you know, I think of, I think of a child who is f- uh, fearful of, of an adult or fearful for his safety. And so, you know, if you can think of a, a time where, like, you've met a child and maybe a friend has introduced you to their, to their child or you've tried to introduce your, your child to another child and when the other kid is timid, is fearful for their, their safety, like, they're, like, hiding behind their parent's leg and they're, they're doing anything they can to keep themselves pulled back. They're not interested in being known. They're not trying to fellowship. They're not trying to develop a a, a friendship with anyone because they're fearful for their safety and their well-being. And there's, there's times where as Christians we can be like a timid child because I'm fearful for my safety of what God is going to do to me. I'm fearful of his wrath, of his judgment. So I don't want to take his grace for granted. I don't want to over-assume that he's given me more than what he really has. And so it's hard to actually have fellowship with God if we're afraid of him. It's hard to, to really say, I desire to be known by God. I desire to have a meaningful relationship with him, to know him deeply if the whole time I'm scared of him crushing me. And so John is saying you need, it's important before we even talk about living out your faith, about what fellowship and intimacy looks like, if you don't come to a place first where you can say, I can be confident in where I stand with him. That I can be reassured that God loves me, that I am his child, that indicative mood, I am his child, and that is secure. It's from a place of, uh, of confidence that this is where spiritual health has to come from. You need to have confidence. You need to be reassured that if you've trusted in Jesus, you are his child, and you can rest in that. True fellowship requires that we trust the safety and security 
of this relationship. It's then from this place that then we talk about how do we respond to this. It's from a place of safety that then we can say, what is it then that I respond to, to this security? How do I live out this, this fellowship? What are some of the characteristics that this should look like? And so what are the challenges to how we respond to this? John continues in, in verse 5. He says, And you know that Jesus was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Everyone who resides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. It's, this, is, this is a confusing verse. Like, let me just reiterate part of it. Like, there, there's times the Bible is confusing. So, you know, he says, everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him. Like, what does this mean? And this is, this is one of the reasons why it's important to, I wanted to reiterate uh, verse one for this, for us. Um, this, this is something that, just remember uh, a chapter ago, in chapter two, John starts there by saying that the, the Christian who sins can find forgiveness. So the point of this verse is, is not to say that if you sin, you are not in Christ. The point of this is not that your sin is an indicator of whether you're saved or not. He, he hasn't forgotten what he said just a chapter ago. He, he understands that, that Christian sin, and this isn't even, a, sometimes people try to argue this, this is a, a well, we're talking about habitual sin here. Like, like let, let's be honest, all Christians have habitual sin. Like all of us, we all have things that we regularly go through. That, that's not the point here. And the point here of what, of what John is saying is he's trying to, trying to distinguish for us in as clear of terms as possible what life in fellowship with God looks like and what life in, apart from fellowship looks like. One, one commentator writes, this is best, speaking of this passage, this is best explained in terms of the author's tendency to present issues in either or terms to bring out drastic contrasts between his readers and his opponents. John, John is trying to say, if you are living in fellowship with God, the result of that is going to be righteousness. If you are not living in fellowship with God, the result of that ends up becoming sin. And he's saying, he's not saying that uh, only, only people apart from fellowship, all they do is sin. He's not saying that. He's not saying that all people who are in fellowship with God, all they do is righteousness. But he's saying, what is the result of living this way, of living in fellowship with God? And it should be displayed in righteousness. That we have a nature, we have, a, uh, because of our fellowship, we have this identity as a child of God, and it's going to be expressed through our obedience. John is saying, I'm reminding you of who you are. I'm reminding you that you're a child of God. So live out that reality. Remember who you are and now live because that's true. Remembering that you are accepted, that you are forgiven, that you are embraced, a part of your status or success, that none of those things have any bearing on how God feels about you and cares about you. And so now live in that unconditional love. And when we do that, 
John is saying the expression of that is going to be righteousness. And so when we're doubting who we are, then it's very easy for us to turn to something else apart from that righteousness as an expression. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, I'm looking around the room, and uh, pretty much all of us, I think all of us here are, are adults. As an adult, you have both the privilege and maybe the, the responsibility of having to take ownership of your actions. You know, all of us have the ability to decide for ourselves what, what we're going to do. You're sitting where you are right now, because, you know, probably three years ago, because nobody moves seats once they, once they find a spot. Like, you're sitting there because you chose to, to sit there, right? Nobody made you. Uh, you're going to go, whatever plans you have after this, you, those are plans that you chose. It's not, like, it's not like when we were children where, where we had a parent telling us what to do. Like, the decisions we make, uh, we are responsible for them. Yet, is it not true that for most of us, there are times it is very hard to say no? Like, when a friend asks you for a favor, you know, when they say, can you help me move or can you give me a ride to the airport, and we all want to say no, uh, but there's a part of us that says, I can't say no, I have to say yes. For some reason, I can't get those two letters out of my mouth, and so I say yes, even though every part of me wants to say no. And after the fact, we're, we're irritated and we're resentful, and we think, that person forced me to do that, that person made me do that. But that's not true. Like, I'm, I'm an adult. I, you're an adult. We have authority to decide yes or no for our decisions. And yet, there are times where we function like children, thinking that someone else is making me do this. I'm going to crush this person. They're going to be so disappointed in me. It's going to be the end of the relationship, blah, 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 blah. And we start thinking these things that we don't have the, the authority to say no, even though we want to. And we aren't living out the reality that I am an adult and I can choose. This happens in, in our faith that we are a child of God. That is the reality. And yet at times I don't believe it and so I live contrary to that. And so the expression should be that I'm living in a place of security. I'm living in a place where I have a secure relationship with God, where I have been forgiven and called righteous, and God says he is with me, and yet at times I don't believe it. And so I turn to something else to find my security, to find my status, to find meaning. We are called to live in reality. As, as children of God, the saying, you know, like father, like son, or daughter, that should be true of us. That if we're his child, there should be ways that we reflect him. One, one uh, author writes that the point here is that when a child exhibits the nature of his or her father, he or she is perceived as a child of the father. 
There, there are ways that just like when you see a parent and a child and you can see a similarity in their appearance, there should be a way that when people see us, that they should be able to see, I see the connection between how you love and how the Father loves. That if we are living out our identity, if we are trusting that we are a child of God, that the expression of that should be similar to how God loves us and God loves others. You know, I want to reiterate here, we are talking about, not about uh, how we are saved, we are talking about the expressions and being the identification of being saved. You know, the test of faith is always, the test of our, our salvation has always been faith. But the ability to be revealed, the ability to identify someone who's saved is often through their obedience. And so we are called to live out who we are if we want anyone to be able to know who we are. Then what then is this righteousness supposed to look like? We're going to read in verse 16. It says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? John writes, you, from the the very beginning, the reason why you are a child of God is because you have experienced Jesus' sacrificial love. You have experienced what love looks like. You've experienced it, your identity has been changed in it, and so you now know what it looks like to love others in that same way. Jesus, Jesus loves, he gave of himself for us. He, think, of, think of the magnitude of, of what he sacrificed to be with us, that from heaven he takes on humanity and comes and lives um, in, in a poor carpenter's family in an ancient time, he lives a humble life and he, uh, the, the creator of the universe, is, allows himself to be executed for us. Jesus, our God, he allowed himself to be humiliated for us. And he says, this is sacrificial love and this is what we're called to do to others. When he, says, when he says, when he talks about loving here, he's specifically talking about love within the church. We're, as Christians, we are called to love everyone, but he says the marker of identifying who is a believer should be by the way that we love each other, by the way that one Christian loves another. This, this, uh, this happens through generosity. Here we were looking at at the giving of possessions. There's, there's a number of ways that sacrificial love looks like as well, though. You know, I'm, th- I'm thinking about, uh, think, especially in times like this where, where socially it's, things are, are so different than this, but how contrary um, to our time is something like empathy. The, something where it's, I'm going to be willing to take what I believe, what I value, and what I think is important, I'm going to set it aside so that I can listen and understand what's important to you. You know, there's, there's 
generosity, there is compassion. Uh, another marker and expression of this is forgiveness. The willingness to say, I was wounded, and rather than seeking retribution, rather than holding this against you, I'm going to sacrifice that. I'm going to be willing to set it aside so that a relationship can be restored. And that this is what the church is supposed to be characterized by. That it's by this that people who are not a part of the church should be able to look and say, there's something about their Christians' relationships with each other, and though I don't quite understand what God is like, there's some kind of, there must be some kind of connection between what's being described in the Bible and how they're living with each other. There's a sacrificing and a willingness to love at our, at our own expense. And so in the church, it should look like that. Because if we are followers of Jesus, we have experienced this ourselves. It's not something just conceptually that we know about. We've experienced it. We've been changed by it. And so we should be able to love someone else in the same way. That we've encountered this. And so our concern and the reason why we have to, it's important for us to be so confident in who we are in Christ is because how else would we know what this love looks like? And then how else would anyone know who we are? I, I, I like that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., he, he describes, he's talking about the Good Samaritan, and he's talking about what does sacrificial love look like. And he says, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The, the point is, as Christians, because we've been loved, because we can be secure in that, we now have the freedom to look to each other and say, I am willing to give to you, I am willing to sacrifice for you and love you in that way because I have everything that I need because I'm a loved child of God and there's security in that. This is how the world is supposed to know who we are. That our response to an intimate relationship with him is to love the church in spite of its costs. I'm, I'm wanting you to be reassured of who you are in Christ if you have trusted in him. I'm wanting you to, to look at yourself and say that you have confidence that you, because you have believed in him that you are his child and that he will not leave you. That he loves you and he loves you sacrificially I want you to experience that, and because you've experienced that, I want you to live out who you are now. It's, it's our response to this, it's how this works out, that these are the indicators that the world can look at us, that we can look at each other and say, I know what someone looks like who has a deep fellowship with God. It's the person who is willing to love sacrificially. It's the person who loves the church, who loves his fellow Christian at his own expense. The, the Christian who is not afraid to get your mud on him. That this is what somebody looks like who has deep fellowship with God.